You are listening to the Brady Farkas Show podcast. Thanks to Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber. You can always listen to the show live weekdays from 5.30 to 7 p.m. on WDEV AM and FM and streaming at WDEVradio.com. You can text in your thoughts 24-7 at 802-585-3026. That's 802-585-3026. The following is a presentation from WDEV Radio. Fast paced. They can go no huddle. They can go two tight ends. They can go play action. They can take shots down the field. They can run the ball with Cam. I love the options here. Opinionated. Mac Jones was a safe pick, but his ceiling is just Kirk Cousins. To the point. The Red Sox are better than I expected. I still don't think they're winning the division. The Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? Welcome in. Brady Farkas Show here on a Friday, here on a pre-holiday Friday, right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. We've got a full 90 minutes today. Red Sox are out west for a couple of games in Oakland and then with the Angels, so we'll take you right up until 7 o'clock. And, you know, in radio, pre-holiday shows tend to be a little bit zanier, tend to be a little bit funnier. I'm not really like a let it all, like just let it loose guy, but we are going to have a little bit of fun today. Mickey Sudo is going to stop by at 545. Mickey Sudo, a competitive eater. You've heard of Joey Chestnut on the men's side, Nathan's hot dog eating champion, I believe 13 times in a row for Joey Chestnut. Well, Mickey Sudo has won the Nathan's hot dog eating uh, championship seven years in a row. The seven time defending champ, Mickey Sudo, is going to be with us two days away from the competition. Now, she's not competing this year because she's pregnant. So she's got a great reason to not defend her crown, but she will be on the TV broadcast for ESPN2. So Mickey Sudo with us at 545. As always, you can get in on the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line at 802-585-3026 at your locally owned stores in Waterbury and in Morrisville. Let's get right to it. Five, four, three, two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts in the Brady Farkas Show brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber. Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber. And they're online at sticksandstuff.com. UVM has its first student athlete to sign an NIL deal. Bailey Patella, men's basketball player, the first Catamount student-athlete to sign a deal that will allow them to profit off their name, image, and likeness. UVM Athletic Director Jeff Shulman spoke to the media yesterday and said he was unaware of any deals in the works for student-athletes. 24 hours later, we have a deal complete. Bailey Patella partnering with Barstool Sports. Now, Barstool Sports is doing a number of partnerships with student-athletes around the country. Men, women, different sports. I've seen women's volleyball represented and men's basketball. There's a whole lot going on with Barstool in the NIL circuit. I don't have any idea as to what their deal looks like. That's not out. I don't know what kind of money he'll get, what kind of merchandise he may get, what they're looking for from him. But none of that really matters here to me. The bottom line is this. Bailey Patella is signing a deal to profit off his name, image, and likeness. He's doing it with Barstool Sports. This brings me right 
to the discussion we had at the end of the show yesterday. You Because of this, because of the NIL stuff being agreed to, you are going to get athletes that endorse brands or endorse products that the school might not always want to run to. You're going to get student-athletes who endorse brands or products that the school might rather you run from. The school does not have any say in this. Okay, The student-athletes can make money wherever they want. So if the school doesn't like Barstool Sports, does not matter. They don't have a choice. And I'm not saying that Barstool Sports is all bad. Okay, I actually really like a lot of Barstool Sports' personalities and programming. And they've done a lot, a lot of really beneficial things for charities and businesses and small businesses during the pandemic. They have done a lot. But that said, Barstool Sports has a questionable reputation, has a sordid past, and a complicated legacy. And now UVM and Bailey Patella are tied up with Barstool Sports. And a lot of people are not going to be okay with that. And that's going to introduce some unintended consequences for UVM. Again, look, I am not in college. I do not go to UVM. And I don't have anything directly to do with the program. The partnership with Barstool Sports at this point has does nothing to me or for me. But there are going to be fans, alums, community members that don't like this kind of stuff. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. Okay, This is exactly what we talked about yesterday. As it stands right now, UVM student-athletes can make money off their name, image, and likeness from any thing that they want to. And some of those things might raise questions for the university, for the programs the student-athletes are associated with, or for the athletes themselves. University of Illinois came out yesterday with with a rule that said our student-athletes cannot work for or endorse the following. Uh, Gambling, alcohol, cannabis, adult entertainment. It was those four. There may have been one more. I think that's a good starting place. Now, none of that would have prohibited Barstool Sports, but as of right now, UVM student-athletes can make money anywhere they want, and you're going to see that some of those brands and some of those partnerships and some of the things that they do are not all going to be well-received, and that is going to cause a headache at least for the university and for the athletic department. Okay, Again, I'm not saying that Barstool is all bad. They've done a lot of good, but there's a lot of people that will point to that questionable reputation and use it against UVM and or Bailey Patella. Barstool has been involved with plenty of allegations of cyberbullying, plenty of allegations of misogynistic behavior, racism. The owner at Barstool, Dave Portnoy, El Prez, not a really well-liked person by everybody. Okay, There is going to be, I mean, there's a lot of stuff here woven into the fabric of Barstool, and now UVM and their athletes are coupling with that questionable, you know, with that questionable legacy. They're now all tied together. And the next time that Barstool does something that crosses the line or pushes the envelope, and there will be a next time, that is what Barstool does. They push the envelope. They walk right up to the line, and they get grief for it. And sometimes they cross the line. There will be a next time 
that Barstool Sports does something that people don't like, and Bailey Patella and UVM are going to have to answer for it now. It is now all fair game for, you know, it's now all fair game for the media and for fans to question those allegiances. Again, I am not telling Bailey Patella or any student athlete to not partner with Barstool Sports or anything else that they can possibly make money off of. And UVM doesn't have a choice in the matter. But this is the whole new reality for everyone involved with college athletics. This is the whole new reality that schools and student-athletes face. There are a lot of perils in this, and we need to all be aware of them. This is not just everybody's going to make money and the the, the student-athletes are going to get rich. There will be unintended consequences here. And one of those unintended consequences happened today at UVM where a student-athlete partners with a, at times, questionable brand and now links the athletic department to that questionable brand. Okay, and th- There are numerous other ways that this can happen, too. Okay, What happens when a student-athlete wants to record music and the music has questionable content and you know they're making money from that? That's something that would look bad on the program or look bad on the university. Again, what happens if right now the rule isn't in place at UVM as far as I know? What happens if a student athlete wants to partner with a cannabis company? These are all things that they would be allowed to do. But they put the program, the athlete, and the university in the crosshairs of some uncomfortable conversations. I mean, and look, let let's also say this barstool sports is a huge brand okay it's a huge brand if barstool sports stays above board then this partnership with bailey patella will do nothing but bring a positive exposure to the athletic department okay being partnered with barstool sports being a part of their social media being involved in their podcasts in any way being involved in their web content in any way it's a great thing If Barstool stays above board, then UVM's profile gets much, much bigger. And that is a fact. But if Barstool doesn't stay above board, then it opens the door to those unintended consequences and those uncomfortable conversations. And that also is a fact. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEV Radio.com. As always, you can subscribe to the full show podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify, and we are up uh, near 235,000 downloads, 235,000 downloads of our podcast, and we appreciate all of you. Okay, July 4th. It's coming. It's two days away. It's hard to believe. We are in the throes of summer. The annual tradition is coming. The Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. Mickey Sudo. She has won the women's division seven years in a row. Seven years in a row. So just what does it take to be a competitive eater? Mickey Sudo with us next on the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Welcome back in. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. It is that time of year again. July 4th weekend is upon us, and with that comes one of the great sporting traditions around, the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. And we are very lucky to have with us now a world-renowned competitive eater. She's won this hot dog contest for the last seven years on the women's side, among a slew of other impressive wins, including ribs, buffalo buffet bowls, tamales. Mickey Sudo is with us now. Mickey, how are you? Thanks so much for having me. Well, I appreciate you being with us. Seven years in a row you've won this. You are Mm -hmm. not competing this year because you are pregnant, so you'll be commentating (laughs) on the event for ESPN. You have the absolute best reason for not competing, but how will it feel not defending your crown? Exactly. It's probably the only acceptable reason. (laughs) It is a good one. But, you know, since 2014, I've been saying if this wouldn't feel right, it wouldn't be the 4th of July if I weren't at Coney Island eating hot dogs. It's been amazing. It's been a huge part of my life, and uh, I'm still not missing it for the world. Like you mentioned, I will be joining as uh, the newest commentator, along with Michael Jr. and Miss Chase. I'm in some great company to weigh in on the women's events this year. And, of course, I'll be cheering on Nick, uh, the father of my child, and my fiancé um, as he goes to have a personal bath with men's life. As a broadcaster providing color commentary, like what do you even say? How do you announce people eating? Well, you know, I've been up close and personal, so I know this contest front and back. I know the competitors personally. You know, I've got some behind-the-scenes insight, but, uh, you know, basically I look forward to bringing facts and facts and figures and weigh in with numbers. This is an estimate that helps people back at home understand who the front runners are and how there could be an upset this year. What is the environment like down on Coney Island July 4th weekend? It's absolutely electric. You know, people always ask me, or they used to ask me, you know, how do you deal with the tens of thousands of people screaming? You know, do you tune it out? Do you drown it out? And I guess my answer was, for the most part, yeah. I go to my hot dog happy place and <laughs> just kind of envision a tranquil atmosphere so I can focus. But, um, you know, 2020, we competed without a live crowd. It was held in this private venue for media only. So I really missed that electric energy. I actually had to remind myself that there are all these people screaming at their TVs back at home, <laughs> cheering us on. So, um, yeah, the crowd at Coney Island on the 4th of July is like no other, and we're really excited to be uh, you know, back in front of a live crowd this year at the stadium. You know, there's a lot of niche sports out there, a lot of niche activities out there, and I'm always amazed at how people get into them. How does one get into competitive eating? You know, it's super cool that competitive eating's grown to the point where now you have people say, I want to do this. I want to, how can I get involved? Um, you know, not too long ago, people would just fall into this by accident, and I was one of those cases. I, I didn't aspire to be a competitive eater. I like to say, I didn't choose this. Competitive eating chose me. <laughs> um, I ended up doing a man versus food type challenge just because my friends thought that basically it would be funny if they tried to eat a 12-pound bowl of soup in Las Vegas to collect this progressive jackpot. And, you know, like, I was a little bit different. I looked at the pictures and said, I think I can do that. <laughs> so uh, I gave this food challenge a shot without any practice or preparation. Ended up eating the 12-pound bowl of soup, collected the $1,500, ended up on a billboard off the Las Vegas Strip. The rest is history because <laughs> I started getting requests to do other restaurant challenges. Um, you know, I just basically stumbled, stumbled over this weird talent where we are today. Do you like challenges that are only based on quantity, or do you like spice challenges or timed challenges also? Um, I think 
all of us across the board have that in common. We we like to challenge ourselves. Um, with that said, I'm not a huge fan of the spicy foods. Um, I've done a few of them. Um, there's a, a there's a ghost pepper burger in Utah that was offering I want to say two thousand dollars if you beat the house record. So. Um, yeah, I, I put out a brave front, finished the burger challenge, but um, I, I really, I really don't particularly enjoy sweating through every <laughs> orifice. Um, but yeah, I like I like doing capacity-based events. I like doing speed-based events. We've got technique events on the circuit, like wings and ribs. So um, a little bit of everything. Mickey Sudo, world-renowned competitive eater, seven times the defending champion of the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest July 4th weekend. This year, she'll be on the broadcast team for the ESPN family of networks that you hear with us now on the Brady Farkas Show. When you are gearing up for a challenge, what do you have to do? I think people just assume, okay, I don't eat for a day, and then I'm hungry, and then I can just pound food. It's not that simple, though, is it? No, I, I mean, so much of the competitions won in the days and the weeks even leading up to that 10-second countdown. Um, I like to prepare my body, you know, familiarize myself with the food. You don't want to be figuring out the anatomy of the chicken wing mid-contest. You want to know what you're, you're, what you're getting yourself into. So for me, in a normal year, I'd be practicing hot dogs just to, you know, get that hand-eye-mouth coordination, you know, the two meats, two buns, dunk and swallow thing going. Um... Yeah, I mean, I don't like to go in because it's contest starving, but I will probably fast about 24 hours leading up to an event just so that my digestive tract is uh, empty and ready to go. I'm staying hydrated, going in focus, psyching out my uh, opponents a little bit. All of that mm. goes into, uh, you know, the 10-minute event behind the scenes. After a challenge, what do you need to do? <laughs> I Well, first of all, I need to thank the crowd and cut some interviews. But <laughs> after that, when it's just me time, um, you know, I go back to the hotel, mostly relax, um, you know, drink all the bottled water in sight, and uh, usually just sprawl out on the bed after <laughs> eating a bunch of hot dogs. Um, <laughs> just kind of rest and recover. Are you a big eater outside of these challenges, or are you someone that you and your fiancé can go out to dinner and you can order, you know what, I'll just have the soup and a half sandwich? Yeah, I, I think there's a healthy balance. You know, when we do go out to eat, we probably, we, we just love food, so we probably do order quite a bit. Um, but at home, when we prepare our own meals, everything is, for lack of a better term, kind of boring. Hmm. Um, our fridge is just stocked with, we don't even keep grocery lists. Like, our fridge is just, we need boneless, skinless chicken breast, we need avocados, we need fresh kale, fruit, nonfat, plain Greek yogurt. Like, there are just probably 12 items or so of just lean proteins, fruits, and vegetables. Oh, yeah, like uh, cage-free eggs, stuff like that. Um, that we just eat on a regular basis. So I'm going to say like 80% of our consumption is just like the same stuff over and over again, um, which tends to be pretty healthy. When you told your family that this is what you wanted to do or you wanted this to be part of your life, what was the reaction? (laughs) Um, I don't think I really announced it. I didn't say, hey, um, Grandma, you know, from now on you're going to call me Mickey the fill-in-the-blank competitive eating nickname like so many people like to give themselves. Um, and so I didn't go about announcing it. I just kind of said, oh, yeah, I'm doing another one of those challenges, you know, went out. Um, it's weird. I probably would have gotten – I might have gotten some pushback. I might have gotten some weird looks. But there's a strange thing that happens when you're successful. And I experienced early success on the competitive eating circuit. You know, when you, when you just win or you're on TV, people tend to be more forgiving. Like, 
okay, that's odd, but you're really good at it. <laughs> so, you know, they're like, and then, you know, on the 4th of July, they're like, that's my granddaughter. So <laughs> everybody's been super supportive, probably because I've actually, you know, done pretty well at it. What's the biggest misconception about competitive eating? Um, I guess people still think that we're, you know, large people. Um, for the most part, the people who do well in contests are kind of in average shape or better. Personally, I find that I compete at my best when I'm active and physically fit. You know, if I can, like, if I can't jog around the block without getting winded, I probably can't eat hot dogs with full intensity for 10 minutes, you know, under the beating sun on the 4th of July. Mm. So it's like you want to go in, you know, in good shape. Um, what else? I guess people think that we lack discipline. You know, you must just, like, gorge on everything all the time. A lot of this is a balancing act. You know, we, we're very much aware of how much we're working out and what we put into our bodies so that we can compete like this, you know, a couple times a month. Um, and finally, I think it's kind of a misconception that a lot of people don't realize that there's a lot of, there's a huge charitable component. So, like, while they see the consumption of hot dogs, they, what they might not know is that Nathan donates 100,000 hot dogs to the Food Bank of New York every year. Or, you know, collectively we raise money for Feeding America every year. Um, so, I think, you know, just some of the, the more charitable aspects behind the scenes um, are lesser known. You know, for you, for Joey Chestnut, Kobayashi, the, the most famous competitive eaters, I'm sure it's gotten to the point where it's pretty lucrative financially. But how many people in the competitive eating game are like Joe the accountant Monday through Friday and then show up in <laughs> Houston on Saturday for some challenge? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Nick still calls himself like, you know, like this is his Clark Kent gig. You know, <laughs> during the week, he's a, a manager at a retail establishment. On the weekends, he's the number six competitive eater in the world. And, uh, you know, for me personally, I, I do competitive eating, um, but I actually just decided to go back to school and, you know, get another degree. So um, most of us have a life and professions, interests, you know, outside of competitive eating. And, uh, but, you know, with that said, I do find myself, I do consider myself incredibly fortunate to be able to, you know, get paid to eat. Or in this, in this year's case, like, I mean, it's cool to get paid to eat. This year, I get paid to, to talk about competitive eating. So um, I, you know, it's it's got a very, there's a wide range of how much money you can make, but I feel really fortunate that I can make any because um, it's, it's fun first and foremost. Well, as I said, you are pregnant with a child. Will you be getting uh, him or her into the family business? No, oh God, absolutely not. No. <laughs> you know, I, I enjoy, we enjoy what we do. I mean, competitive eating has afforded me the opportunity to, to eat, compete, travel, meet some really cool people. I met the love of my life. Uh, you know, it's not a lot of great things, but I think whenever you, whenever you, whenever you're involved in something at a high level, you see the work and, you know, frankly, the less glamorous side of everything. So, you know, whether you're a lawyer or a doctor, you know, you're going to see a side of it that's like not so glamorous. Um, and so, yeah, our kid's going to be encouraged to do everything except for bodybuild and competitively. <laughs> Those are the two things that are off the table. Well, I still sense a great Instagram photo opportunity where, like, after the uh, first full bowl of baby food is eaten, a shirt that says baby's first challenge with a check mark. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, Mickey Sudo, world-renowned competitive eater, seven times in a row the winner of the Nathan Hot Dog Eating Contest. And uh, this year she's going to be on the broadcast team, her fiancé competing on the men's side. Good luck to him. Good luck to both of you uh, as new parents here soon. We appreciate the time.
Thank you so much. Well, we look forward to it again. So there goes Mickey Sudo. Uh, that's a lot of good stuff right there. That is awesome. I, you know, she uh, she was great. She's gonna do great on the ESPN call of the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating event. Eight zero two five eight five thirty twenty six Napa Morrisville Napa Waterbury text line. If you have some some thoughts on eating hot dogs or on uh, or on Mickey Sudo's interview, I'm really intrigued though, and I wish I had followed up on this, but I knew we were up, you know kind of out of time with her. When she said at the very end, when you're involved at something in such a high level, you see the less glamorous side of things. Like, what's the dark side of competitive eating? Like, that's what she's referring to. Like, it's not all glamorous for me. It's There's something there that makes it not that great. What is that thing? I mean, you know, we think about traditional sports, right? Well, at the highest level, sports is a business. And these athletes get, you know, they see the business side of things and that kind of sours them on the sport, right? They play the sport at some point. A lot of them do because it's a job and it's no longer fun. And it's no longer fun because of the business component to it. And I said this all along about coaching. When I was coaching, you know, coaching baseball was like 20% of the job. 80% of the job was things you didn't like. Ordering clothes, booking you know, booking umpires, getting the field ready, um, you know, making sure guys are academically eligible, checking in with their professors. I mean, that that was a lot of what coaching was. And actually coaching baseball was, like like I said, like 20% of the job. So what is the less glamorous side of competitive eating? I'd be very curious about knowing that if we had uh, Mickey Sudo on again. Seven years in a row. Seven years in a row she's won this. I put myself in a 10-minute period. I think I could eat about about eight hot dogs, really, in about a 10-minute period. Um, now, it's hot dogs and buns. I just like hot dogs, so that helps. So I feel like it wouldn't be as hard for me. And you can get a hot dog done in you know, three bites or something if you were really trying to pound it. I'd have to really test this out. I did six at the Vermont Lake Monsters Hot Dog Hysteria a couple of years ago. And I'm trying to remember if I could have gone more. Six was the limit you were allowed to take with you in one time. And I'll, so all I did was six and spent, you know, $1.50 to do it. But uh, I'm trying to remember if I think I could do more. We had people tell us they could do a lot. I mean, Caleb from Waterbury Sports earlier said he thought he could do 10. Uh, Calvin from WCAX said he thought he could do seven. But then Roger Hill said he thought he could do three at the most. So there's a wide range of uh, predictions on people's own hot dog eating abilities. But uh, Mickey Sudo was phenomenal. If you miss any of that interview, you can always check it out on the Brady Farkas Show podcast channel. Thanks to Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. All right, we're going to take a break, come back, get a look at the CBS News. But when we come back to the show, the thing yesterday that I said I was most excited about and the Red Sox second half of the season was them having the number four pick in the draft. And I caught an endless wave of grief for that take. So if I like number four pick in the draft best, where do I rank the other second half candidates? That's next on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV. Looking for a new career? Pro Driver Training is Vermont's premier truck driver training school, offering Class A and B CDL, passenger, and advanced skills training. With locations in Milton and Enosburg Falls, online at prodrivercdl.com. Taking classes isn't really my thing. 
not a problem. ProDriver Training uses a combination of lab, behind the wheel, and classroom training. They can break things down in a way that's understandable to you. I'm pretty busy. I don't think I have the time. ProDriver Training will work with you with flexible scheduling. I'm Evan Hallstrom. I got my CDL Class A at ProDriver Training. Liz and Alex made me feel very comfortable and adjusted training to my needs. At ProDriver Training, success is their goal. A commercial driver's license can open up a whole new world of opportunities. ProDriver Training, with locations in Milton and Enosburg Falls, online at ProDriverCDL.com. Want Brady to hear your opinion on the sports stories of the day? Text in at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Everybody, Brady Farkas show right here, WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Red Sox out west taking on the A's. We'll have the coverage for you tonight at 8.40 right here on WDEV. Speaking of the Red Sox, yesterday I posed a question. Okay, I posed a question, and it was a poll question that I had seen. I asked you all this. I said, in the second half of the Red Sox season, what are you most excited for? And there were four choices. Were you most excited for? The Red Sox had the number four pick in the draft. Were you most excited for the Red Sox calling up young prospects? Were you most excited for Chris Sale's return to the team? Or were you most excited for the MLB trade deadline? I said I was most excited for the Red Sox to have the number four pick in the draft. And I said my reasoning was I want the Red Sox to build a sustainable winner. The way you build a sustainable winner is through the farm system. One of the best ways for the farm system to get replenished is through the draft. And when you have the number four pick in the draft, you can get arguably the best single piece in your farm system. That, to me, is why I was looking forward to the most the Red Sox having the number four pick in the draft. I caught an endless wave of grief from that. Intern Jack and others on the Napa-Morrisville Napa Waterbury text line just roasting me for that take. I get it, right? It doesn't impact having the number four pick in the draft does not impact this year. It does not impact trying to win the World Series this year. But I'm trying to win the World Series every year. And the best way to do that is to have a great farm system that you can constantly replenish, restock, bring guys up from. That's how teams have won World Series recently. Teams have been built that way. Dodgers, Astros, Royals, Red Sox. They've all won the World Series with that formula. So I caught grief from all of you for my number one choice. I'm going to give you my two, three, and four in order. 802-585-3026. So with the caveat, Red Sox having the number four pick in the draft is the thing of those four I'm most excited for. Here goes the rest of my list. The number two thing. I'm most excited for here in the second half of the season is the Red Sox calling up prospects. It follows the same logic of what I just said. It follows the same logic of why I like the number four pick in the draft the most. I like prospects. Like I'm going to the meetings. Okay. I'm Brady and I like prospects. Some of you don't. 
someone once told me, oh, prospects are just get people fired because you keep waiting for them to develop and they never do. Fine if you think that. I like prospects. I'll stand at the meetings and I'll do the speeches. I'm Brady. I covet prospects. Okay. The only reason why I didn't choose this over having the number four pick in the draft is because I think there's really only one new impact prospect coming in the second half of the season, and that's Jaron Duran. Connor Wong is here now. I don't know that he's going to stick once Kevin Ploiecki comes back. Tanner Houck will be here. I've already seen him. I'm excited for him, but I have seen him. The guy who I haven't seen, who I'm ecstatic about, is Jaron Duran. If this were a situation where the Red Sox had, you know, seven top 100 prospects, this would be number one for me. They don't. They have one guy that's going to come up here in the second half of the season. I don't think we're going to see Jeter Downs unless there's an injury. So Duran is the only guy that I'm really anticipating watching. And by the way, Jaron Duran was not put on the U.S. Olympic team. He was at the Olympic qualifier, was not put on the team. I think that probably is in large part due to the fact that maybe the Red Sox pointed to USA Baseball, hey, we're going to need this guy between July and August, or USA Baseball said, you know what? We're pr- This guy's probably not going to be here, and we better replace him now so we don't have to replace him later. So Duran, I think he's coming, and I think not being on the Olympic team is a good signal to that. And I'm excited about Duran, and I think everybody is. Lou Merloni and company, they're all excited about Duran. But I have to be wary of putting too much pressure on him, of expecting too much from him. The Red Sox outfield with Verdugo, J.D. when he's out there, Verdugo, Martinez, Renfro has been very good. The Danny Santana, Kike Hernandez, that's where Franchi Cordero when he was up, that third spot is where it has gotten troublesome. So a lot of people are pointing to Duran as the guy that can right that ship and stabilize that third outfield spot. I can't put all the pressure on him. He has been great at AAA. He was very good in the Olympic qualifier. But let's understand that not everyone just crushes it their first go-round in the big leagues. I'm pumped to see Duran come to Boston, but I can't put the weight of the world on his shoulders. And I talk about Young guys not all being great their first time through the their first time here in the big leagues. Mike Trout, first twenty I'm sorry, first forty major league baseball games hit two twenty. That's Mike Trout. And I believe he got sent down at some point. Mike Trout, Hall of Famer, the he's a Hall of Famer's favorite Hall of Famer. Mike Trout hit two twenty in his first forty games. Xander Bogarts, in his first full Major League season, 140 games plus, Xander Bogarts hit just 240. Jared Kelnick, Mariners prospect, top five prospect in all of baseball. I believe he was hitting 108 this year before being sent down. I believe he was 8 for 83, and now he's been sent back down to AAA. It doesn't click right away. For every Bryce Harper, for every... Juan Soto for every Rafael Devers who hit 280 his first go-round. There's guys who struggle. So I can't pin all the hopes on Duran. So I'm looking forward to, you know, the reason why I chose the number four pick in the draft first is because 
I can play the long game and I don't have to, you know, experience an immediate return, which is what you need with Durant. And some because sometimes that immediate return does not come. The number three thing I'm most excited about. So number four, pick one, prospects coming up. Two, the number three thing is Chris Sale returning. That's the third thing I'm most excited about. I've seen Chris Sale pitch a bunch in my life. I know what he is. He's not that new to me. As good as he is, he's not that new to me. And I know I'm holding that against him a bit, but I like new things. I like different things. It's why I like the draft. It's why I like prospects. Sale's not new and different to me. And similar to Duran, I can't put that much pressure and expectation on him either. I know that he can contribute. I I know that he can help my ball club. But I can't just expect him to single-handedly save my rotation or single-handedly uplift my bullpen. I want him to do well. I know he can help. But expecting him to be my savior is just not fair. So because I can't have huge expectations... I don't allow myself to get incredibly excited about Sale coming back in relation to the other two. And the number four thing, last on my list, the last thing I'm excited about here is the trade deadline. The trade deadline for the Red Sox this year, I have a feeling, isn't going to do a whole lot for me because I don't think there's going to be any big movement for the Sox. I don't. I don't think that there's some kind of massive deal out there. Teams aren't doing that as much because they don't want to give away all of their prospects for rental players. Okay, When the Orioles traded Manny Machado a couple of years ago, when the Astros acquired Randy Johnson in 1998, like that deal I don't think is out there for the Red Sox. Now, Trevor Story of the Rockies will be available, plays shortstop. Red Sox don't need a shortstop. They don't need him at third. Could they put him at second? Maybe, but I don't see high and bloom mortgaging a lot of the future for a rental player in Trevor Story. And by the way, a rental player that is hits for a ton of power but doesn't hit for a particularly high average, doesn't do all of the things that this team is good at. So I, I just don't think that that kind of deal is out there. So if you're not making that kind of deal, then I think you're just making a lot of kind of small deals. And small deals can be very effective. Like a couple of years ago, on the way to the championship when they acquired Steve Pierce, World Series MVP, small deal, worked out great, but at the time doesn't get me excited in, in anticipation of the deadline. When they acquired uh, uh, Ian Kinsler, good move, you know, did some nice things, not a move that really whets my appetite for the trade deadline. I mean, this is a balancing act. And intern Jack didn't want to hear it yesterday, but the Red Sox are in a delicate balancing act. I don't think they will sacrifice their long-term goals for short-term gratifications. Okay, They won't blow out the prospect capital they've built in order to make a splashy move. Again, a series of smaller moves, definitely possible, likely going to happen, but nothing that gets me all that excited. In fact, Chaim Bloom, Red Sox you know, chief baseball officer, he was asked by WEEI yesterday, "What if, would, is there a chance you just stand pat at the deadline and don't do anything? certainly possible. Uh, I don't think we want to do something just to do something if it doesn't push us towards our goals. Uh, it, it wouldn't be my preference because you always want to 
be able to make deals because it means you found something that you think improves your organization. Trades are one way to do that. Obviously, it takes two to tango, and uh, it has to make sense for us. So, you know, that's certainly a possibility that we don't end up doing anything. Uh, but if that happens, it'll be because we had just as much conversation as if we were to make 10 different deals. We just didn't find anything that we thought fit the, fit the organization's interest. So there you go. He's, it's possible even they stand pat at the deadline. That's nothing that gets me all that excited. That's why I ranked it last. If they could get Whit Merrifield from the Royals who we just saw, the guy who solves their second base problems and their leadoff problems, then I'd be excited. But until then, nothing about the deadline particularly amps me up. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. We've talked a lot in the last couple of days about the name, image, likeness stuff in the NCAA. UVM athletes now a part of that. They will be able to make money off their NILs. Bailey Patella, who we talked about at the beginning, men's basketball player, has already signed on with Barstool Sports. Jeff Schulman, UVM athletic director, spoke to the media yesterday about this stuff, and we've got the audio from him. There's a couple interesting takeaways here from Jeff Schulman, so we'll just kind of rip right through some of this audio. Part of our guidelines is that um, that they're not permitted to enter into um, any sort of sponsorship agreement um, that would kind of directly conflict with with one of our existing sponsors. And there's room for interpretation about that. That one makes sense to me. That is a UVM rule. So UVM has not put rules in place to halt the kinds of businesses or the kinds of endorsements that athletes can do. But they have said. Athletes cannot partner with brands that are in direct competition with our corporate partners. That one makes sense, okay? Nike spends a lot of money to put their stamp all over UVM Athletics. It would not be fair to the university for an athlete to go partner with Adidas. That one makes sense to me. Coke spends a lot of money to be the exclusive vendor at athletic events and and probably in the entire dining hall system, probably all over campus. UVM is a Coke campus, and it would not be fair for one of the athletes to go and endorse Pepsi. So that makes sense to me, okay? What I am curious about, though, is what constitutes, like, what constitutes a partner that you can't go against? Like, for years, the men's basketball broadcast booth on radio has been called the Handy's Toyota Broadcast Booth. Does that mean that no men's basketball player can partner with any car dealer other than Handy's Toyota? I don't know. And if I get, I'm trying to get Jeff Shulman for next week. It's a little bit weird because of the holiday. That's a question that I will ask him. Okay. Nike and Coke, those are school wide things. But if a sponsor just pays to be a part of a broadcast, is that also something? that an athlete can't go against, okay? Does that mean that, you know, look, if a pizza place buys advertising for the women's basketball team, can no women's basketball player, you know, endorse another pizza place? Those are things I want to know. Number two, here was Jeff Shulman also uh, moving forward. The initial inclination is to be thinking about high-profile athletes in high-profile sports. And while there certainly may be some some sponsorships and endorsement opportunities for, for those student-athletes, I think, uh, particularly at a place like UVM, you know, we, we may be surprised by who, what, what student athletes really end up benefiting. So basically, Jeff Shulman says that he's not sure how many Catamount athletes will actually benefit from this. I think this whole thing 
is going to be very interesting to watch. UVM athletes, I'm convinced, will. They will find a way to get things and to get partnerships. What I don't know is how many, if any, will get lucrative deals. And I don't know even what constitutes a lucrative deal right now, but I know that the University of Miami quarterback got a $20,000 deal from a company. Okay, $20,000. I don't know that a UVM athlete will get one worth five, but I do think that they will put things together. These young people in general and these student athletes are very creative and they're very forward thinking and they're very good and in tune with social media. They will find ways to partner on social media to whether it's through their sport, whether it's through their other interests, like Arkansas football player partnered with PetSmart. Pet lover, he and his dog, going to be a face of PetSmart. Now, these athletes will find a way through their sport or through their other interests to get noticed and get partnerships. I just don't know how lucrative they'll be. I think that the idea that a UVM athlete pulls in 50 grand from one business, probably not likely. But I think that they'll cobble up enough little things that they could certainly, you know, utilize their creativity and come up with partnerships. I think they will benefit from this more than Jeff Shulman thinks. I just don't think that the money will be particularly lucrative. I think it's more likely that a Catamount athlete comes to UVM, plays well for two or three years, and then, you know, maybe hits it big in that last year. And at the beginning of their career, they're probably, you know, kind of scraping to get by. That would be my guess. Um, and number three, we don't have the audio on, but this is also interesting to me. There's an interesting note in all this. Jeff Shulman was asked how these NILs would impact overall athletic department revenue. Basically, would a business who usually would spend money through the entire athletic department, would they instead funnel that money or part of that money to an individual athlete? So instead of 20 grand to the athletic department, would they give 15 to the athletic department and five to a player? And would that impact the athletic department? Jeff Shulman was not worried about that. And frankly, I don't think that I am either. I think by and large, at least in this state, at least in this community, businesses want to partner with the university as a whole. The the college is such a fabric of the state, and so many people went to college at UVM. I think there's a deep-seated attachment to the school more so than there are individual athletes. I don't think that student-athletes are going to start rapidly stealing business away from the university's revenue stream as a whole. I do think businesses might have to pony up more because I think that they will see and learn that there is a lot of good in a multifaceted business approach. Like, hey, we're going to pay you that 20 grand and we want our, our logo on the hockey rink boards. But we also are going to pony up a little extra because we want the best player on the hockey team to endorse us after the game. Hey, our pizza place is on the board. And then after the game, after a Catamount win, we want UVM athletes on social media saying, hey, come join us out at X for a post-game slice. I, I think that you'll see businesses that value both, and they will have to pony up a little bit more to really take advantage of all the different ways to get their message out. I think it's going to force businesses to be creative.
because I think they'll see how they can add to their profile, but I don't think that it's going to rapidly take away from the athletic department as a whole. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. I have a who's saying what that I want to get to, but I'm going to save it for later in the show because there's something else I want to get to more on the other side of this break. U32 graduate Owen Kellington may hear his name called in the upcoming Major League Draft. After talking to Nathan Rohde yesterday from the Prep Baseball Report, one thing about Kellington continues to stand out as incredibly impressive. I'll tell you what that is next right here on WDEV. You're listening to the Brady Farkas Show podcast brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Middlesex, St. Albans, Swanton, Enosburg, and Derby, and online always at sticksandstuff.com. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show, right here, WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Going up until 7 o'clock, a full show today. Dinner Jazz follows me, and then Red Sox Baseball is with us at 8.40 today. They are out in Oakland to take on the A's. Reminder, speaking of coming on out, how about July 7th? That's next Wednesday, five days from now. It is WDEV night at the Vermont Mountaineers, inviting all of our great listeners to come hang out with us there at Recreation Field in Montpelier. You'll see all the uh, the, 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 the cast of characters. Roger Hill's going to be there. I'm going to be there. Quorum's going to be there. Greg Hooker's going to be there. Craig from the News Service in the morning is going to be there. So we're going to have a pretty big contingent there. So come on, hang out with us. we got some stuff to give away and. uh want to meet you. That's really what this is about. We want to get out in the community. First time we've all been able to get together in a long time, and we're looking forward to hanging out with you. And I'm looking forward to my first Mountaineers game. So I've been to the Lake Monsters a bunch. This will be my first trip to the Mountaineers, and I really am looking forward to it. So that is Wednesday night. Come hang out with us at Recreation Field. We Owen Kellington might get drafted in the next week and a half. In fact, he's probably going to hear his name called. But not only does it appear that he is just simply good and simply has raw talent, it also appears that he's an advanced and a mature prospect. And I love this, okay? I was thinking more about our interview yesterday. We had an interview yesterday with Nathan Rohde of the Prep Baseball Report, and he said something that really stuck with me about Kellington. The breaking ball looked pretty good. He also showed a slider, um, you know, just kind of wrinkled one in there that I thought was pretty decent. And then the changeup, he had a pretty good feel for it. maintains the arm speed on it and looks like a fastball coming out of his hand. So. so think about that. I'll play it one more time. Listen to this again. The breaking ball looked pretty good. He also showed a slider, um, you know, just kind of wrinkled one in there that I thought was pretty decent. And then the changeup, he had a pretty good feel for it. maintains the arm speed on it and looks like a fastball coming out of his hand. So think about that. Nathan Rohde who knows the draft inside and out, knows these prospects inside and out, and knows the, the, the process of the draft inside and out, he is telling you that Owen Kellington from U32 High School has advanced off-speed stuff. Why is that important? Why is that impressive? Because Owen Kellington likely never needed off-speed stuff to run through Vermont lineups. And he's got it anyways. Okay, He's got something he likely never needed. He throws 90 miles per hour. 
most players in Vermont have never seen 90s miles an hour, nevertheless tried to hit it. I promise you this, from what I know about baseball, Owen Kellington could have rolled through 95% of hitters in this state just throwing a fastball every single time. He could have said, I'm throwing a fastball, here it is, hit it, and most of them would not have been able to touch it. But yet, he clearly has worked on and developed his off-speed stuff. That is very mature and very advanced, and it's something that clearly is serving him well through this draft process. Think about this. He didn't need those pitches often, and he still got them at an advanced level. How often do we see athletes, when they don't need to do something, they never develop it, and then it hurts them later? Let me give you a couple examples. How many quarterbacks do we see, even in the NFL, who can run around and make plays, but when push comes to shove, they simply can't make the play with their arm. It's the conversation we have about Lamar Jackson every year. Lamar Jackson has always, throughout the entirety of his life, I'm sure, middle school football, high school football, and in college at Louisville, he's always been able to make things happen with his feet. But now in the NFL, if he can't save the day with his legs, his arm hasn't been there to pick him up. The other stuff is there to pick Owen Kellington up at the next level. I even think about myself on a much smaller scale, okay? I even think about myself on a much smaller scale. Look, I have always been tall. I'm six foot five. I was six foot one in sixth grade. When I was playing basketball and I wanted a rebound, I just stood there and went and got it. I was simply just bigger than everybody. I never needed to box out. I never needed to play with the physicality to get a rebound. And I never needed to jump. I just I put my hands up, tap it around to myself until I could grab it a couple of times. That's all I needed to do. And I never worked on any of that other stuff. Because as I get older, as I got older, and I got to high school, and I didn't just tower over everyone... It was no longer easy for me to get rebounds. I didn't have the fundamentals of boxing out. I wasn't good at it. I didn't have the strength or the physicality to, you know, to battle for a rebound. If it wasn't easy for me to get, I couldn't get it. And I also couldn't jump. I never worked on those things. So not developing any of that stuff really hindered me. And again, that's just high school basketball. But this is just high school baseball and Owen Kellington has recognized, "Hey, I may not need this stuff here, but I'm going to need it there. That's what makes a good pitcher, having multiple pitches that you can go to. Owen Kellington never needed a fa- never needed anything, I promise you. He never needed anything but a fastball to get through Vermont lineups, and he's got it all. I'll play the entirety of Nathan Rohde's quote on Kellington. Listen to the part we already played plus the end. The breaking ball looked pretty good. He also showed a slider, um, you know, just kind of wrinkled one in there that I thought was pretty decent. And then the changeup, he had a pretty good feel for it. maintains the arm speed on it and looks like a fastball coming out of his hand. So, you know, he's got four pitches. I would say, you know, he's you know going to probably focus on, you know, the fastball curveball changeup moving forward, the slider, something in that maybe he just kind of throws it in there to keep guys off balance down the road. But those first three definitely look like um, they all have a chance to be at least average pitches for him down the road. He's got four 
pitches, three of which are very good, he's telling you. He's got four pitches. He's never needed more than one, and he's got four. He clearly has learned how to pitch at a time when he easily could have just focused on throwing. It's the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. I am pumped for the MLB draft, and I am pumped to hear Owen Kellington's name. I don't know that he'll sign top three rounds. I'm sure he does. Beyond that, I would say it is a crapshoot, but uh, the draft will be held July 11th through 13th. July 11th through 13th. The Red Sox have the number four pick in the draft. We will be monitoring them, and then we will be monitoring Owen Kellington as well. As for the draft order, um, the Yankees are picking at 20th, and uh, you know, other than that, that's kind of all we need to know here. Yankees at 20, Sox at 4, Kellington sometime over the course of those three days. And that's what we're looking forward to. But incredibly advanced stuff there at a Kellington. All right, we do this every single day. Let's get to crazy Twitter takes. The internet, it's a really weird place. Where'd you hear that? The internet. And you believed it? Yeah. They can't put anything on the internet that isn't true. Where'd you hear that? The The internet. internet. It's time for crazy Twitter takes on the Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Doesn't anyone notice this? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Crazy Twitter takes today comes from Jermaine Wiggins. And this one pains me on so many levels. Jermaine Wiggins, former Patriots tight end. Jermaine Wiggins, WEEI radio host. And Jermaine Wiggins, the first guest ever in the history of the Brady Farkas show. I don't want to go at Jermaine Wiggins. But Jermaine Wiggins today said that Cam Newton is a top 10 quarterback in the NFL. This also pains me because you know how much I love Cam. Everybody knows by this point here in the, what are we on here? Ninth month of doing this show. Everybody knows how much I love Cam. And I do love Cam, but he's not a top 10 quarterback. He's not a top 10 quarterback in the NFL. Running down this right now, heading into this year, focusing only on this year, where do I think Cam ranks? Well, let's see. Josh Allen's better than him. That's one in Buffalo. Patrick Mahomes is better than him. That's two. Derek Carr, Justin Herbert. That's four right there. I would say Lamar Jackson still, and I'd say Baker Mayfield still. That's six. Joe Burrow, I'll say it's close, but I'll still give Cam the edge at this point for this year. We're at six right now that are better than Cam. I would say Ryan Tannehill at this point is better than Cam. Deshaun Watson is better than Cam at this point. That is eight quarterbacks in the AFC that I would say are better than Cam. Dak Prescott would be nine. Russell Wilson would be 10. Matthew Stafford, 11. I'd say uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, when healthy, is probably 12. Kyler Murray is 13. Aaron Rodgers, 14. Uh, Tom Brady, 15. Matt Ryan, 16. I would say that we're around, you know, we're around. Cam Newton being the 17th best quarterback in the NFL. Now, Chris Sims ranked Cam 20th last week. I think it's much closer to 20th than it is to the top 10. And there are other people who are kind of knocking on the door. Kirk Cousins is around Cam. Sam Darnold, I think, is worse than Cam. But if he's if he unlocks his you know top five pick potential, 
He's around Cam. I think, I mean, Daniel Jones is below Cam, but he's not that far off. Ben Roethlisberger's in the neighborhood. I love Cam. And by the way, I don't want this to be lost in this part of the discussion. If Cam Newton is 17th best, like I think, or is 20th best, like Chris Sims thinks, I think the Patriots could win with that. Cam Newton, you're telling me, is better than guaranteed better than one-third of the quarterbacks in the NFL and possibly close to one-half. If the Patriots just do what they're supposed to do, they run the ball well, they block well, they play good defense, they have a great head coach, they have an established offensive coordinator, they have an easier schedule. If they just do what they're supposed to do and Cam Newton just kind of manages everything and he's the 17th or the 20th best in the league, they can make the playoffs. Absolutely, they can make the playoffs. Baker Mayfield last year looked pretty good. Last year, we would have said he was about 20th best. Brown made the play. Browns made the playoffs. Okay? Browns made the playoffs. Ryan Tannehill, he's in that neighborhood. He's in that 14 to 17 neighborhood, especially going into last year. Titans made the playoffs. When I think about Jared Goff, he's probably in that, you know, 17 to 20 range. Rams last year with him. They made the playoffs. So Mitch Trubisky made the playoffs. So if Cam Newton is truly just, in quotes, in the 17 to 20 range like I think, the Patriots absolutely can still be a playoff team. Their schedule is sequenced well. And if they stay healthy, always a big caveat, they're going to have a much better defense, they're going to have a much more productive offense, and they're going to have a good running game. I, I, I have high expectations for the Patriots this year. I don't have Super Bowl expectations. But I have high expectations that they winning record, first or second place finish in the division, and get to a playoff game. And I think they can win a playoff game. I might put their cap at one playoff win, like Cleveland last year. Tennessee, I think they're a similar team. Tennessee lost in the first round. So they might be capped out at one playoff win, but I absolutely expect them to get to the playoffs. And by the way, I can't believe... We're like three and a half weeks away from football. How shocking is that? We just hit summer. It's not even July 4th. And this happens every year, obviously. But it's almost football season. Like, by the end of this month, we're going to be having Patriots training camp stories. And we're going to be talking about the Mac Jones-Cam Newton battle. And I'm not quite ready for that. I want to enjoy this Red Sox season. But... I do enjoy football coming back because it gives us a lot to talk about. It gives us more content. More people like football the most. But I'm not quite ready for it yet. It's July 2nd, and football is three and a half weeks away. I am already working on our football season guest list. I am already trying to lock in football season guests and Patriots insiders for us. And we'll have some announcements on that in the next couple of weeks. But I'm very, very excited about the potential for our Patriots coverage this year. We are a Patriots affiliate. We picked the Pats up last year, like week six-ish or week eight-ish. We'll have them for the entirety of the season this year. I can't wait for our partnership with the Pats. I can't wait for the access to the Pats that we have. And I can't wait for our experts to weigh in on the Patriots this season because I think it's going to be pretty extensive. I just can't believe that Jermaine Wiggins put Cam in the top 10. That's not fair to Cam either at this point. The Patriots don't need Cam 
to be a top 10 quarterback. They need him to be a guy who manages the game and who doesn't screw things up. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable expectation. That is what they need. That is how they are built. They have a good enough team around Cam and around the quarterback position that they can let Cam just kind of navigate everything and navigate everything, um, you know, in a low-risk fashion. That's why I think the Patriots need to play. Brady Farkas show is brought to you in part by Evan Holstrom Racing. Evan Holstrom is an 18-year-old out of Northfield, Vermont. He races the super late models on the Pro All-Star Series. And if you love local racing, then you're going to love Evan Holstrom. If you love the guys we talk about at Thunder Road, the Jason Corlises, the uh, Trampus Demers, if you love those guys who are from Vermont, who are Vermont bred and they're great drivers, you're going to love Evan Holstrom too. It's that simple. Go to EvanHolstromRacing.com. Check out his partners. Check out his bio. Check out, uh, he's got 10 top 10 finishes in his career. He's 18 years old. He's the youngest ever to qualify for the Vermont Milk Bowl. If you love local racing, Evan Holstrom's a name that you need to know and proud sponsor in part of the Brady Farkas Show. It has been a great first half for the Red Sox. A great first half for the Red Sox. But are the days numbered for one of the biggest staples of that great Red Sox first half. We'll talk about the clock that's ticking on this Red Sox player next right here on DEV. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Jack up in South Burlington says, Brady, do you mean game managed for Cam? What about calling out blitzes and calling out audibles? Yes, that is part of playing quarterback. I think that... I don't think that Cam's going to play with one hand tied behind his back, but I do think that Cam is going to play smart. I think Cam will have a much better um, knowledge of the offense this year, and he'll be able to do more things and pick up on more things on his own, but I don't think that he's going to take you know a ton of unnecessary risks. I think get the ball in the hands of your playmakers and watch them work. Watch your defense work. Let your defense work. Understand that at this point in his career, Cam Newton does not have to be Superman. I think if Cam Newton plays like I think he is, the 17th best quarterback in the league, the Patriots could absolutely win a bunch of games and go to the playoffs this year. And frankly, if Mac Jones were to start, I think he's going to be somewhere in the 20 to 30 range in the best quarterbacks as a rookie. So I think the team is better off with Cam. And if Mac Jones were the quarterback, it'd be a lot of the same stuff as Cam, a lot of game managing, but I think Cam's running ability and Cam's ability to be a threat in the run game will help play action, will help on the goal line in a way that Mac Jones just can't. So I give Cam the edge, and that's why I want Cam to be the starter on opening day and it's against Miami, and it's why I want Cam to hold the job as long as he is playing reasonably well. If this team comes out and with their schedule – there's a very real possibility they could be 3-1. and one. They could be 3-0 and oh heading into that game against Tom Brady. They could be 3-0 and oh heading into that. I believe that's a week four game last week of September, or first week of October maybe. But I think they could be 3-0. and oh. They could be 3-1 and one through the first quarter of the season. Cam Newton can lead this team to the playoffs, so I don't want to rush to give the job to Mac Jones. I think Mac Jones is in that 20-30 to 30 range. Cam's in that 17-20 to 20 range. Therefore, the team is better off with Cam. Jack then follows up with the Pats will go 4-1 and one through 5. I'm sure, th- I think that they will. I don't remember who's on the schedule after that uh, Bucks game, but the schedule sets up very, very favorably 
for the Patriots this year. I mean, it, their hard games are a lot of them are at home, and they're sequenced to the point where they are spread out. It's not like you have some gauntlet of back and forth, you know, three or four hard games in a row. They had that this year. They don't have that uh, this upcoming season. Okay, the Red Sox are taking on the A's tonight, and they're taking on the A's in Oakland. Coverage starts at 8.40. First pitch is at 9.40, and we'll have it for you on WDEV. Here's the Red Sox lineup for today. Erod is pitching. Kike Hernandez leads off in center. Alex Verdugo leads off in left. Xander Bogarts is at short. Rafael Devers is the DH. Hunter Renfro is hitting fifth in right field. Marwin Gonzalez is playing third base. He's hitting sixth. Christian Vasquez hits seventh and does the catching. Danny Santana hits eighth and plays first. And Michael Chavis hits ninth and plays second. Notice who wasn't in the lineup today. And that's Bobby Dahlbeck. Notice who's not in the lineup today starting. It's Bobby Dahlbeck. The team is going with Danny Santana at first. The team went with Danny Santana at first yesterday. And the team went with Michael Chavis at first the day before that. Are we nearing the end of Bobby Dahlbeck as a star? I think we're already at the end of Bobby Dahlbeck as a starter right now for the Red Sox. But are we nearing the end of his real chance to contribute to the 2021 season? It has been a grind for Dahlbeck. He has had two distinct hot points of this year. But by and large, 65 games played. 10 homers, 34 ribbies. He's hitting 218 with a 267 on base percentage. And he is um, striking out. I mean, he struck out 86 times in 216 at bats. That is, you know, more than 40% of the time. So he's striking out more than 40% of the time. The major league record is like, or the major league average is somewhere in like the 25% range. So he is way over the major league average. Bobby Dahlbeck, I think, is maybe headed for a triple-A spot here. Danny Santana can play first. Chavis can play first. Marvin Gonzalez can play first. And now in triple-A, Franchi Cordero was playing first base a bit, at least working out there. We saw the pictures from Worcester the other day. Franchi Cordero, who struggled mightily at the plate and is primarily an outfielder, he's been taking balls at first base. It feels like... There may be a some momentum towards getting Bobby Dahlbeck down to AAA. Obviously, you're not giving up on Bobby Dahlbeck. He's too highly regarded of a prospect. He's too important to what you do overall. And, you know, he's still part, I would think, of your long-term future. I mean, in a perfect world, I would say it's possible that, you know, you're looking at when J.D. Martinez leaves, Tristan Cassis plays first base. Dahlbeck is the DH, and Devers plays third. And you get a long-term deal done with Devers. So there, there's room for Bobby Dahlbeck in my organization. But it doesn't. It appears like he's being squeezed out right now. It appears like he's being squeezed out right now. And right now he's not starting. And Bobby Dahlbeck is 26 years old. He just turned 26. He's too young to just sit and rot on the bench. If he's not playing... He's got to go to AAA, and maybe it's time for Franchi to come back. And I don't know if that would happen. I mean, I'm not—I can't sit Dahlbeck for nine days, you know, before the All-Star break here. So, 
maybe we're getting to a point where Franchi Cordero comes back. Maybe the Red Sox will go make a move and they'll go pick up somebody like they did a couple of years ago with Steve Pierce, like they did a couple of years ago with Ian Kinsler. They'll go pick up another infielder and another bat, and that will force Dahl back down to AAA. But it feels like we're at the point where Bobby Dahlbeck is kind of out of chances right now. And it feels like only injury would kind of get him back into good graces. I mean, if you sit a young player for a day, that's to clear his head. Sitting him for two, maybe it's a matchup. I mean, yesterday, the Royals threw out a slop left-hander, and Bobby Dahlbeck couldn't play. So if Dahlbeck can't get on the field against a slop left-hander, against a team that's in fourth place, that, that doesn't spell real good news for him. And Santana at first again today, Chavis at first the other day, Dahlbeck looks like he's out of chances and might be headed to AAA. I just don't know if it will be because Franchi Cordero comes up or if it will be because High and Bloom goes and makes a move. But we will, um, you know, we will be continuing to watch that. Again, Red Sox baseball tonight, 840. We've got it for you right here on your home for Sox baseball, WDEV. Again, Erod's on the mound tonight. He's 6-4 and four with a 5.83 ERA, but he pitched much better his last time out. Looked very, very good against the Yankees in that Sunday game in which the uh, Sox beat up on Garrett Cole. So, again, behind him, Kike in center. He's got three home runs out of the leadoff spot in the last week. Verdugo in left, Bogarts at short, Devers the DH tonight. Renfro in right, Gonzalez at third, Vasquez the catcher, Santana at first, and Chavis is the DH right now. For the A's, Frankie Montas, hard-throwing righty is on the mound. He's 7-7 with a 4-7-2 ERA. He's going to throw a fastball that's up there 96, 97 miles an hour, and he's going to feature a very good splitter, a very good splitter. And you don't see a lot of guys with splitters you know, anymore that they feature prominently in Major League Baseball. Frankie Montas does. He's got giant hands, and you'll see that splitter just dive completely, you know, into the dirt. Behind him, the speedy outfielder Ramon Laureano leads off in center. He's got 13 home runs this year. Elvis Andrews, the veteran, is at shortstop. 17 ribbies and 7 steals this year, hitting just 227. Matt Olson's got 20 homers, 53 RBIs. He's hitting 287. He's at first base. Matt Chapman, the Platinum glove winners at third, but he's struggling with the bat, but some signs of coming out of it. He's hitting 226. Former Lake Monster Chad Pinders in right field hitting fifth. Jed Lowry is hitting sixth. He's at second base. The veteran got seven homers this year. Former Lake Monster Sean Murphy does the catching and bats seventh. Frank Schwindel is the DH just up 333 with a homer and two ribbies. And Tony Kemp, also a New York Penn League alum, he plays left field and hits ninth. Got a little bit of pop to him and some speed, hitting 273. That'll do it for us. Thanks to Mickey Sudo for stopping by, competitive eater, and the now seven-time defending champion of the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. So, uh, she, again, she won't be in it this week. She is pregnant, so she'll be commentating for ESPN, and uh, look forward to hearing her work. That'll do it for us. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the Sox game. Happy 4th of July, everybody. We will see you right back here on Monday on WDEV AM and FM.